The SEC plans to require climate change risk disclosures under a new plan. For the first time ever, the agency plans to require businesses to outline the risks that a warming planet poses to their operations when they file registration statements, annual reports, or other documents. And David Manilow is back to talk about the recent Chicago Chef's Cook for Ukraine event at Navy Pier. He'll share highlights from conversations he had with some of the chefs at the event. And I think that people are like coming out partly for Ukraine, but partly to kind of give the chefs a a group hug because they've been away for so long. Yeah, there's a real strong um, element that something isn't right and we wanted to make it better, Mm. to step up. And a lot of people have reasons for being here, but definitely this is food people. Mm. This is food people that have rallied. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, March 23rd. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined now by David Manilow, who recently went to the Chicago Chef's Cook for Ukraine event at Navy Pier to raise money for World Central Kitchen, the charity led by celebrity chef Jose Andres. Welcome back, David. So tell me about this event. You know, I've been involved in putting together some pretty decent-sized um, food events. And, you know, it takes three months, five months. They did this in two weeks. Yeah, it was impressive. And had 70 chefs, 2,000 guests. Amazing. So what restaurants, which ones were there? Oh, just about everyone you can think of. And apparently there was a waiting list to get in, but they didn't have the room. They did it at the uh, Navy Pier. Two floors, huge stage. So some of my highlights, some of the things I really liked eating there. Demera, Ethiopian and Uptown, had this wonderful vegan dish really spicy and great and boca uh, lee wolen had a smoked carrot tartare never had that before it was so good you, you can kind of traverse chicago like uh, in bridgeport there's the duck in um, kevin hickey and he did a duck fat dog with ukrainian borscht on it wow which was wild really good jola in the west loop had an artichoke salad with shrimp which was also really great and there was lots of desserts and lots of you know, camaraderie. And, you know, they haven't done this in two years being all together. So it was a really lovely, warm event that I think um, people had a great time and they raised $500,000 plus. Amazing. That's, that's significant. And so you talked with some of the chefs in attendance. What, what was the mood from them? Well, I talked to them a lot about how Chicagoans have it in kind of our blood to just step up and help and how we're really, I think, especially in the chef community, the most philanthropic in the country. And uh, Tony Priolo, and, uh, who owns a Piccolo Sonio and is also the chef there, co-owns it, uh, and Sarah Stegner, who is the chef co-owner of Prairie Grass Cafe, I think were the kind of the leaders on this, and they started it. And they were just super impressed how everybody just naturally just kind of stepped up. And, they've, and you know, the chef community has been doing it for years for all kinds of causes. And I think this one that, you know, it's it's so heart-wrenching that everybody was just happy to dive in. It isn't just the 70 chefs. It's the community of Chicago chefs that have come together and really lent a lot of support to make this happen. Not everybody could be here. 
And particularly during the pandemic, some people's restaurants have been financially compromised. And we've all been through struggles. Uh, that was Sarah Stegner from uh, Prairie Grass Cafe. We're the first one in the world that's doing something like this. And that was Tony Priolo, who uh, was the impetus behind that. He is a chef co-owner of um, Piccolo Sonio. There's rumors of D.C., L.A., New York. I mean, look what, look what Chicago started. I think this is a really good sign. I know, like, the weather's getting warmer. Yep, look outside. People are going out, and you have the best patio in the city. So what do you think is going to happen? What, where do you think we're heading in the restaurant world now? I think we're, uh, we're back. We're ready to go. You know, two years ago, on this day, we were shut down. And look at us now. Look, everybody's here. This is the first big restaurant event. We're ready to uh, throw down. We're ready to party. And it's for a cause. And it's for these poor refugees who are hiding in subways trying to get over to, you know, find normalcy. As you said at the top, that's a significant amount of organizing in a very, very short time. You know, Jason Hamill of Lula Cafe really put it well. He was talking about how it's kind of in their DNA to just problem solve. Sure. You're from a chef family, you know, know, restaurant family. You never know what's going to, you know, come at you. And it's just a question of just like experience meets common sense meets kind of let's get it done. I mean, every night you come across like, okay, we got to, you know, feed 150 people and two people didn't show up and the fish is late. You know, you work out problems on the fly. That's what we do. That's a really good point. You guys are not daunted by you guys are not daunted by kind of like extreme make it happen kind of things. Yeah, so little stressy moments don't phase us at all. We'll just like figure out a way to get it done. That's how we do it. Maybe it doesn't take six months to do <laughs> some of these events in 42 meetings, you know? Sometimes you just kind of like, you just when you have to get it done, there's a deadline, you have to get it done. I was going to say, maybe this changes things from now on because people will be like, well, maybe we don't need all those meetings. We can just make this happen. Uh, I took a vote with all the chefs uh, by email. I said, guys, since we have this, we got... We didn't have a date yet, but let's pick a charity. We all chose Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen. You know, Green City Market stepped up to the plate, and since we don't have a 5013C, we couldn't take the money ourselves, so they stepped in and they, they took it for us. And they've been a champion. Sarah Stegner, Darren Guest, and uh, Ida Davidman have, and myself have been working tirelessly making this happen. And we don't have any real ties to Ukraine, but we're humanitarians. And if I wouldn't have done it, anybody in this room with a white shirt would do the same thing. I don't think the the organizers got much sleep for a couple of weeks, but uh, it was really, really worthwhile. And like I said before, very, very warm and embracing and a great cause. Of course, restaurants were just so deeply impacted by the pandemic. Did you get a sense, sort of the other issue in the room, did you get a sense in talking with folks, kind of the general mood at this stage of things? I would say that the general outlook is is positive and i can just tell you from my personal experience it's tough to get a reservation in a lot of places right now because just people want to be out and you also talked with chef carrie nahabedian from brindil people are just excited to put on a piece of jewelry put on some nice clothes uh you know tuck a shirt in instead of wearing sweatpants and you know we all did what we had to do and now it's time to get back to what we did best which is be hospitable to people, cook great food, make it. All we're doing is cooking. Little by little, the industry is coming back. It's very, it is slow, I will tell you that. But it must make you, last question, must make you feel good that your colleagues just all naturally step up for this. All we're doing is doing a one small part. You have to remember that. I mean, the heavy lifting is being done by millions of others. We are just providing 
money for Jose to continue feeding upwards of a million people, a million meals a week going on. And, you know, Jose Andres is, you know, he's feeding kids and families in Ukraine. So I think everybody can understand that. And, you know, the other interesting thing, there were four chefs there that found out that day that they were finalists for James Beard Award. That's right. All that happened at the same time. And I think that was pretty wild that you got this incredible honor. You know, Beverly Kim, the outstanding restaurant for Parachute. I just don't even know what to say. You know, I'm speechless. Like, this is a huge honor. I'm so humbled because there's so many amazing restaurants um, in this country. And, um, but, you know, I, I can say that all that hard work paid off, you know, and it feels really redeeming. And I hope that inspires other people that to not give up on their dreams. But, you know, a lot of the James Beard Awards too, in addition to obviously having a fantastic place, is, you know, uh, being a good, um, good citizen to the community, you know, a good steward. And you're doing that, you're doing it with the abundance setting. Tell, tell me a little bit about that as well. The pandemic actually really catapulted a lot of feelings of negativity, right, in, in our industry, a lot of security gone. And um, the only way out for me is through the problems. And what I've seen throughout my career is that this industry has a gender disparity and there's inequity. And I experienced this as a woman and as a mom. And, you know, it's culturally like this. And it also the support systems are really, really um, not there and lacking. But how, how amazing would it be if we used our community one person at a time to help each other to, to, to make the support network so that more women and more working moms can get back and pursue their dreams. An incredible honor. And, and that night, they're just basically out serving the community and helping other people. I thought that was just, you know, lovely, splendid. Yeah, certainly beautiful timing indeed. All right. Well, David, what's coming up in the week ahead? Uh, we're going to talk about restaurant week. Oh, that's happening too. It's coming up. It's much longer than a week, but I'm going to do a little exploring. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, not only what's out there, there's a lot of restaurants participating, but the kind of the business impact as well for Chicago mm -hmm. that Restaurant Week has. Some good deals and, you know, we'll explore, we'll figure it out. And, uh, you know, lots going on in the, in the city. Certainly. All right. Well, we will talk then. All right. Fantastic. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, the Monday crash of the Boeing 737-800 aircraft operated by China Eastern Airlines so far baffles experts as the extreme profile of the accident sets it apart from other disasters. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Cranes invites all general counsels, chief legal officers, and senior in-house counsels to our general counsel breakfast on May 17th. The event will feature Chicago's top general counsels offering perspective on current legal trends in business and litigation. Plus, our exclusive panel takes a closer look at how general counsels can best manage the risks and challenges in today's landscape. CLE credit will be available. To learn more and find out how to attend, visit chicagobusiness.com slash events. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. 
Under a new Securities and Exchange Commission plan, companies will need to reveal detailed information about their greenhouse gas pollution, signaling a major shift in how corporations would need to prove they are dealing with climate change. For the first time ever, the agency plans to require businesses to outline the risks that climate change poses to their operations when they file registration statements, annual reports, or other documents. Some large companies will also have to provide information on emissions they don't necessarily make themselves, so-called Scope 3 emissions, which are generated by other firms in their supply chain or by customers using their products. Some companies, including ExxonMobil, have already started disclosing those types of emissions voluntarily. The proposal, which was released on Monday, sets up a potentially major clash with industry lobbyists and with Republican politicians, who argue that regulations are outside the SEC's jurisdiction. Democratic lawmakers, environmental advocates, and the SEC, however, say mom-and-pop investors need that sort of information in order to make informed decisions. The SEC would also require that auditors or other experts review the climate disclosures for large and medium-sized companies. The requirements would be phased in over time. Business and environmental advocates will reportedly spend the coming weeks looking over the rules' details. The SEC will take public comment for as long as 60 days and may revise the proposal before holding a second vote to finalize the regulation, though the proposal is likely to face legal challenges. Under the plan, companies would also need to disclose how management is preparing to deal with climate change risks, any climate issues affecting their strategy or business model, and the impact of severe weather events, use of analysis scenarios run by a company in order to determine climate resilience, and internal carbon pricing models. In a major change to debt reporting, three leading credit reporting agencies said Friday they will no longer include paid medical collection debt on consumer credit reports. Equifax, Experian, and Chicago-based TransUnion said in a statement that joint measures regarding medical debt would remove nearly 70% of medical collection debt from consumer credit reports. The reporting agencies cited Kaiser Family Foundation data that found that two-thirds of medical debts are the result of a one-time or short-term medical expense arising from an acute medical need. The statement said, quote, after two years of the COVID-19 pandemic and a detailed review of the prevalence of medical collection debt on credit reports, the national credit reporting agencies are making changes to help people to focus on their personal well-being and recovery. And so, effective July 1st, paid medical collection debt will no longer be included on consumer credit reports. In addition, the time period before unpaid medical collection debt would appear on a consumer's report will be increased from six months to one year, giving consumers more time to work with insurance and or health care providers to address their debt before it's reported to credit bureaus. And in the first half of next year, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion said they will also exclude medical collection debt under at least $500. A dispute over the scrapped combination of Chicago's amalgamated bank with its unaffiliated New York namesake appears to be headed for court. Crane's Steve Daniels reports that on March 15th, New York-based Amalgamated Financial received a letter from the Chicago bank saying the deal was dead after the New York bank announced last month it would no longer proceed due to regulatory roadblocks. That according to an SEC filing by Amalgamated Financial. The New York bank said in the filing that it had been advised by Amalgamated Chicago's counsel that AIC may seek compensatory damages for an alleged breach of the merger agreement. 
The deal, struck last year for what would have been just under $100 million in cash, fell apart abruptly last month, and unusually, there was no provision in the merger agreement for a breakup fee to be paid to the Chicago bank if the New York buyer walked away. But as Daniels also points out in his reporting, the agreement does, as most such deals do, require both parties to use commercially reasonable efforts to secure regulatory and shareholder approvals. So any court battle is likely to assess whether the New York-based bank made its best attempt to win approval from the FDIC, which sources say raised concerns about compliance with the Community Reinvestment Act. Amalgamated of New York said in the filing that it denies that it breached the merger agreement and would vigorously defend any such claims. The China Eastern Airline jet that crashed on Monday after its nosedive from 29,000 feet is reportedly baffling crash specialists, and the extreme profile of the accident appears to be setting it apart from other air disasters. Bloomberg reports that as investigators search for the plane's two crash-proof recorders and start analyzing clues, they will be trying to determine why the jet made such an abrupt and severe dive, which sets it apart from earlier accidents. They'll be looking at the weather the plane may have encountered, whether the pilots made any distress calls, any hints in the wreckage of possible malfunctions, as well as detailed profiles of the crew members. The unusual crash is feared to have killed all 132 people aboard in China's worst commercial aviation accident in more than a decade. While there have been a handful of crashes in which an airliner fell from cruising altitude, according to veteran crash investigators and previous accident reports, few, if any, fit the extreme profile of the Boeing 737-800 as it pointed steeply towards the ground. An aviation safety consultant and former 737 pilot who spoke with Bloomberg said, it's an odd profile. It's hard to get the airplane to do this. The flight was roughly 100 miles from its destination, about the point at which the pilots would start descending to land, when it started plunging at a far greater rate than normal. Instead of gradually dropping by a few thousand feet per minute, which produces a barely detectable sensation for passengers, it began falling at more than 30,000 feet per minute within seconds. That according to tracking data logged by Flight Radar 24. And the plane's dive also appeared to have halted for about 10 seconds, and it climbed briefly, adding an unusual twist to the scenario. But the Flight Radar 24 track, which is based on radio transmissions from the plane, then showed it resuming its steep plunge. While cautioning that the Flight Radar 24 data is preliminary, experts told Bloomberg the relatively straight track taken by the jet and the fact that its transponders were still broadcasting suggests that it didn't break up in flight, as has been seen in the case of some bombings. A surveillance video appearing to capture the plane in its final moments showed it in a steep dive toward the ground. Chinese media outlet The Paper said it had verified that the video was shot by a mining company near where the jet made impact. But it is also important to note that Bloomberg and a few other outlets say the video's authenticity could not be independently verified. A former NTSB investigator who also flew 737s cautioned that it's far too early to draw conclusions on what led to the China Eastern crash and said that while it's possible to come up with many scenarios for some type of malfunction or pilot miscues or some combination of the two, none of them seem very likely. He also echoed other investigators saying the 737-800, like other jetliners, is designed so that it won't normally dive at steep angles. You can find more reporting on this story, as well as many others, at chicagobusiness.com.
That's Crane's Daily Just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, David Manilow. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.